Somebody's coming down the stairs. So let's see. We started. I haven't seen Jonathan in a while. He's one of my buddies. You all know Jonathan? Yes, general. General, actually a, cor uh, a major cor corporal major. I think a corporal major. We always discuss this, but something like that, something like that. So actually, tonight we have. I, I, I was gonna go, like the way I always do, finding a mitzvah or so in the Torah in this week's parsha. This parsha is very easy to find. You have the idea of the. The sinew that we can't eat, right? We have the, the, and that's why we don't eat the back quarter of all animals. I did not know that we have a butcher or two in our midst over here. I did not know that. My buddy over here was a butcher, and I can, I don't know how to do the butchering, but I do know how to traver, which means I know how to, I can tell if the fat, if, if the, the uh, sinews were taken out properly according to Jewish law. All right. Anyway, so there's there's plenty of this. There's, there's lots of stuff we could have spoken about. But there, I heard a shear this week, and the shear to me, there was a point that Rabbi Weinberger said, Moshe Weinberger from H Kodesh, that was just I have to repeat it over. So to, in order to repeat it over, I have to give a background, and the background itself. Some of you have heard this Gemara, some of you haven't. If you heard it already, we do a little chazar, a little review is worth it. If you haven't re re reviewed it, if you have never heard it, then it'll certainly be eye-opening. And we have copies of the Gemara, so this way, this Gemara cannot be a hearsay Gemara. What I mean by that is, you know, it's, ne it's always better to see the uh, original source inside instead of just relying on the person who's teaching, right? But sometimes you come across Gemaras that are a little bit sensitive, the type that Azriel wants to tape. And those type, you have to really be careful that, you, you know, that people see it inside so they know that this wasn't just concocted out of Rabbi Zach's brain. Jews are supposed to ask questions. As Jewish people, we are supposed to ask questions. The Torah is transparent. I mean, you think about it. Moshe Rabbeinu, and this is found in, the, we know this, it's found in the Torah straight out. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have any cuffs in his pants or in his sleeve. He, he, he had no cuffs on his, um, they didn't wear pants, they wore togas or whatever. But there, were, there was no cuffed area. Why? The Gemara says because there were people who would accuse him that maybe, you know, because Moshe had money. So, like, where did he get the money from? <laughs> of course, we know when he was in the Holy of Holies, he took some cash from the Tzedakah box. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. That's like, if you think about it, that's crazy. But we're not afraid. The Torah is open for question. We're not afraid. We question our leaders. We question everything. One day I was in um, Tarvadas, and Rav Belsky, how many people here heard of Rabbi Belsky? Rav Belsky was like a massive, massive gadol, but it was, he wasn't your regular, he was, he was, he was a gadol in, in knowledge, not just of your typical knowledge. I remember bringing, um, it was a girl, and now she's married and has children who are married, and she was a, um, a nurse 
in uh, Manhattan in the Big Cancer Hospital in, uh, in Sloan Kettering. And she became a Balas Chuva and by us a little bit. And she was contemplating or she wanted to be switch over to AIDS, you know, to become a nurse for AIDS patients. And she had some questions that she wanted to ask a POSIG. So I brought her to Robelski. As she came in, Robelski says to her, so you probably want to talk about do not resuscitate orders. And she was like so surprised that like the rub would know right away like a primary area that she has to deal with as an AIDS patient, as an AIDS nurse, you know, versus what she was doing in Sloan Kettering. One day, Rebelski came over to me and he said to me, what was the first interaction that Moshe has with God? Anybody here know? The first, and we're talking about in the Torah, the bush. So what does it say there? What are the words? You, you have a bush on fire, and it's not being consumed. Robelski said to me, that would be the equivalent of seeing a car on the FDR drive. I remember saying the FDR drive on fire, and in the car, the people are dancing to some music. You know? Because yeah. <laughs> that, the bush is burning, but nothing's happened to it. Imagine you see a car on fire and everybody's just like, you know, listening to music and enjoying. It's crazy. So Ravelsky said to me, the natural reaction of people would have been to either run away from it because it's too spooky, you know. Spooky things scare people. Spooky things scare people. I'm going to go off topic for a minute. Just remind me where I was up to. What I'm going to tell you is mom is a true story. There was a guy who was by my house who was going through a bad divorce. It was late Saturday night. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I said to him, I said, Joe, let's, Joey, let's go to the OHEL. So I go, I said, so he said, okay. I get in the car with Joey. Late Saturday night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, these two men, one older, one younger, in a car, and we go on the Grand Central Parkway service road, onto the Grand Central Parkway. All of a sudden, I see the lights. What? No, no, all of a sudden, I see the lights, you know, the cops, you know? So I pull over, the cop says to me, apparently I didn't signal that I was going on the highway. Like, signal to go on the highway. Like, who signals? Merging, yeah. Who signals when you're merging? Okay, forget about that. So you're a good man. So the cop says to me, I promise you, he's standing out with his partner, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning, two men, it's a very scary moment for cops when that happens. He says to me, where are you going? And I say, going to the cemetery. (laughs) He says to me, he says to me, what what cemetery? I say, to the Grand Rabbi Cemetery. He looks at me, he says to me, what are you doing there? He says, I say to him, I'm gonna go pray. (laughs) <laughs> he looks at me and says, do you do this often? I say, all the time. <laughs> he looks at me, I promise you. He looks at me like he saw a ghost. He said, 
just just go just go he he pushed my hand like like you know like fed me you know just just go just just go there's certain things that you know like naturally you know what i mean like it's a people we get we get spooked by things we get spooked there's a, such a thing we get spooked so one approach would have been to be spooked the other approach is to bow down to it like the, what it, whatever this is must be something that you bow down to that's not what moshe does what does moshe do Rebelsky said to me, what do we do? We say, Asuru Na the Pasuk says, let me go forward and see, as Hamara Hagadol Hazer, this wondrous event, this, like this thing. Madua, why? That's what he says. Madua lo Yivaris. Now, why is, this, why is the bush not being consumed? He said, a Jew, we're supposed to ask, we're supposed to ask why. Everything is a why. We're supposed to not be afraid. I personally believe that after the Holocaust, see, you guys don't know because you're too young. You're about how old? Old enough to know what the Holocaust is. How old are you? Okay, I won't ask you. I'm 65. I'm younger than you. When I was in yeshiva, a very common book at that time, Sefer, was Faith After the Holocaust. There were a lot of books about how to deal with issues of the Holocaust and calamities of such, you know, that it was a, a major, at the time it was a big issue. Today, I don't know if people are reading that many books about, about be it the Holocaust or other types of, of truth. But at that time, it was, it, was a, it was a big deal. I think, therefore, people stopped, I think, I don't know if this is accurate, but my personal feeling is that maybe that's why in the yeshiva world, people stopped asking questions. Or rather, if you ask questions, the rabbis didn't want to really answer the questions. You know, I'm just just a, suspe- a speculation. I, I don't know if it's true. Or whatever. We're supposed to ask questions. I would like to give you guys out my favorite questions of the Gemara. It's one page, and then we'll get into the question that Moish Weinberger spoke about, which has to do with the parsha. Okay, so we're going to pass this around. Even if you're not going to look inside it, you should have it inside. You know this, Gamar, because we did this already several times. But we're going to do it anyway because we're not afraid. We're not afraid. We should just, uh, you got my blessings. As long as we're recording this off, we're not afraid. We're not afraid. No, this will be on. This is on, I think. Yeah, why not? You got this my is Gemara Brachas, Daf Samach Beis. We'll read it through together inside. Tanya. Tanya means that this is a, uh, a quote from a Brisa. A Brisa is the same as a Mishnah, meaning the Mishnah was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and was composed in approximately the year 105 of the Common Era. Those thoughts that other rabbis felt should be codified in the Mishnah by Rabbi Yudan Nasi, and Rabbi Yudan Nasi did not, code, did not include, they become known as the Brisa, equal power, equal stature, but they're not part of the Mishnah because Rabbi Yehuda didn't include it, okay? Tanya, I'm a Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva once said, Pamachas, it once happened, Nichnasti achar Rabbi Yeshua I once went into the bathroom stall with my Rebbe, Rebbe Yehoshua. 
Right, remember this, the Gemara? You remember this. Yeah, Gemara. I kept all that on the recording. Thank you very much. No, this is okay. This is okay. And I learned three things from him. By sitting, going in the bathroom. You got to understand, the bathrooms in those days, I mean, because we go hiking in New Hampshire, you know. The bathrooms in New Hampshire, when you're hiking, they are not the same as the bathroom over here. They are. You know, it's just not the same. Now, my, my friend over here who spent some time in the military and probably used bathrooms or situations which were even less than the outhouses in New Hampshire, probably. You would assume, right? So there's different halakhas. They have outhouses in the woods? Yeah, sure. Oh, I thought it would just be the woods. No, there is certain places had outhouses, certain places. You know, not, not often. There are times when there weren't, but, but there are places. So anyway, so there's different halachas which apply to them than to now in the bathroom here. Because when here you flush and it disappears. Uh, just for a matter of interest, I had a guy, we spoke about this, was it here that I spoke about this? About the guy who refused to flush the yeah, toilet? Yes. Why didn't, so why are you allowed to flush the toilet? Because it's a makam patur, that's why the reason. He didn't want to flush the toilet on Shabbos. He decided that it's carrying. That's an interesting point. From now on, tell your wife you're not flushing anymore. That's not going to go over well. Not well, not well. Is there anything on the ground, Makam Patur? Yeah. I'm sorry. That's the... Otherwise... Nope. Toilet. What? I lost you. Yes, sir. It didn't matter he's a Balshuva. That didn't matter, but... He, it, sometimes Bali Chuba can look at things in a fresh eye and say, hey, you're not allowed to carry in the street. You're not allowed to throw a ball. So why should I be able to flush a toilet? After all, the liquid and other, whatever, the liquid goes from this place to that place, and that place is a public place, right? It's, it's not the house. So I should be allowed to. So he didn't ask any but, questions. But is it a public space? What? Is it a public space? It's not your house. But the sewer, the sewer, I mean. It's only because you can't go inside it. But if you were part of I mean, Honey Shrine, I Shrunk the Kids, then <laughs> you'd be walking through it. Is it first going to <laughs> the sewer in your house, then into the main sewer? What? Yeah. It goes from your toilet, and this is Right. Into the same Rishusayachid. Where's the other Rishusayachid? It's not your, your house. There's sewer in your house. Yeah, but that, that, it's no sewer in your house. Yeah, it goes, uh, I don't know. It's you, a pipe. It goes from my house. It goes all the way out to the East River. Not to the East River, but it goes, you know. Do you consider the sewer or Rishusayachid? Okay, so these are interesting. But they're not. It's called a Rishusayachid. It's called a Makhubatur, therefore different locations, and this is because it's very small and it's underground, whatever. But the concept, you hear the concept. The guy sorry. was like, he's stuck on this. I'm sorry. Gonna, I, want you to fly, I want you to flush the Shabbos. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> 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 the is, in, is a, uh, it's like, a, it's, the pipes is... is it's under, it's below, it's under, it's below the ground and it's too small. It's a small area. It's under the ground. I mean, we could have a shear on all different <laughs> toilet issues. We could. I, I, so, they, but I want you to know, there's a lot of interesting things about it, because 
when you flush the toilet, seriously, it's as though it's not the same as in an outhouse where you have... Yeah, turn this off for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, just for one second. I thought it was staying on. No, I'll tell you what. It's about wiping and whatever. It's not talking about these, necessarily about these bathrooms. These bathrooms might have a different category. You know, because right now there's nothing there. I mean, assuming it's flushed, there's, there's nothing there. While in the outhouse, there is leftover remnant. Please, I'd love to around. hear. I'd it, love to hear. This actually kind of wild. Yesterday I was learning to learn Tamid with Rabbi Avi Hoffman. Well, he probably knows it better than I do. I'm not an expert in toilets. <laughs> but, but, but it was the discussion, I think it's, um, I forgot the two time, but they, uh, or Amarayim, they were discussing talking in the bathroom with the door locked. Right, that's what this is all about. The sneeze issue in a bathroom. There was also, in the army they have a shovel with them? We have, we have shovels, but we don't... Do you uh, carry a shovel with you? It, it, You're supposed to. If you well, they, they issue us one. They issue, yeah, you issue a but shovel. But they, uh, because when we go outside in the bathroom, we have a stomachache, where do you go? You go to the toilet. But if you're in the middle of Iraq, there ain't no toilets around to go, so you got to dig a hole, right? Because you have to cover everything up, because otherwise you could be tracked, right? That's the idea, something like that. These days, aren't there toilets everywhere? No. No. <laughs> Um, no, absolutely not. Really like desert. You have no <laughs> idea about what to do when you don't have. A, a, okay. Yes, there are not. <laughs> so this halacha is talking about this. So it can be a situation. It says that you, when you go, when you defecate, you should be sitting down, not standing up. It has to do with sneers because because everybody could see you. You know, whatever. It's, it's not the same, or whatever. It's. I'm not gonna say it's not the same. I'm going to say it leads to questions, modern-day halachic questions. But getting back to the story, he says he, he followed his Rebbe. So, so, his, his, so his Rebbe says to him, Amalo ben Azai, ben Azai, who is the student of Rabbi Akiva, says, Adkan he'azta panecha berabecha, you had so much chutzpah that you followed your Rebbe into the bathroom? Well, I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, I'm not going to do that now. Let's not do that now. Oh, Because okay. no, I want to get to the point. The, the point wasn't this. We could do that between me. We could. We could you know, <laughs> some people care. You know. Okay. So he says, Rabbi Kiva responds, and he says, Torah he, everything is Torah. This is Torah. He said, this is Torah, but the truth is everything is Torah. That's the point. And I have to learn. There's nothing that's out of the, the range of Torah. Bodily functioning is all part of Torah. We, we live in a, in a, in a um, I don't want to say it's not a Christian world, but in Christianity, uh, sexuality has, an, has a negative Victoria. Uh, connotation to it. Where Judaism doesn't look at it like that. Everything is holy, potentially. Everything could be also not holy. Everything is Torah. Torah is everything. And therefore, and therefore, this is not out of the bounds. It's not out of the bounds. Nothing is out of the bounds. Gemara continues just because it's so interesting. It says then, so Ben Azai, 
who is the student of Rabbi Akiva, who said to Rabbi Akiva, hey, isn't this a little bit much? He follows his Rebbe because, after all, he listens to his Rebbe. So, Atanya, Ben Azai Omer, Ben Azai then goes and says, I also followed my Rebbe, Rabbi Akiva, to the bathroom. And he also, he said, I learned certain things from him. And Amalei Rabbi Yehuda, so Rabbi Yehuda, who is Rabbi, who is Ben Azai's student, says, You have so much chutzpah, in other words, going generationally, this idea that there is nothing beyond the scope of a question, if it's a real question. So he answers, so Ben Azai responds, This is Torah, and I gotta learn it. There is nothing beyond the scope. There was once somebody that came to Rabbi, uh, I don't want to say the wrong name, I think it was Rabbi, El- I think it was uh, the founder of the Musa movement was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, I believe it was him, but maybe it was the Briskarov, but the, whoever it was, Somebody came to him with a very strong question, and he, the, the rub responded, if it's a question, I'm willing to answer the question. But if it's an answer for why you're living your, your life, then you can't answer an answer with, you can't answer an answer with a question. If, you ask, if you're asking me a question, I can respond with an answer. If you're giving me an answer, then I can't answer an answer. But as long as we're being intellectually and spiritually honest and, and our integrity is there, then anything is game. The Gemara goes on with the last case. Rav Kahana, it once happened that Rav Kahana, this, this is where we go into the area where we are now entering. But it's in the Gemara, so we're going to say it. We're going to say it. We don't care. It says, Rav Kahana al Gaga Tute Puri de Rav. It says that Rav Kahana went under the bed of his of Rav when they were in the middle of being, in, when he, when Rav and his wife were being intimate. Shama desak v'shak He saw that his Rebbe was first talking and then laughing a little, and then he had intercourse. So then he, he's, all of a sudden he starts talking, and he, he says, you know, to his Rebbe, you're, you're enjoying yourself or something like that. If you're married, we could talk about it later. So Kahana says, what are you doing under my bed? That's a little bit much. Pook, get out of here. Delav Orech Ara, because being under a married husband and wife's bed has now gone over the line of being disrespectful. It's one thing to go into the bathroom of your Rebbe. Because after all, it's your Rebbe. It's Torah, maybe. I mean, not for me and for you. Don't come in the bathroom. <laughs> Don't come in the bathroom with me. I'm not a not Madrega. You know? But to go under your Rebbe's bed when he's with his wife, that's already, now we're not having, we're having problems in, in, 
in uh, social, social issues. issues. That's a so that's uh social etiquette. I mean, it's it's not, it's not social etiquette to follow somebody into the bathroom. <laughs> but we just said no. a minute ago. He, yeah, but you had a wife there. So if you want to be fancy on yourself, your Rebbe can do it. Because think about it, the Rebbe said the same thing to him. Rabbi Akiva said the same thing to him, I have to learn from my Rebbe. So it started somewhere where the Rebbe said, I'm cool with it. Come in the, not come in the bathroom, but I'm okay, I can handle it. But to go and to be there when there's another person, which is the wife, which gets us to the whole thing, just for a moment, I have to just go off. And now that we did this Gemara, which is probably the most, in my mind, from any Gemara that I've ever seen, the most transparent about inter- interactions between, you know, how anything is on the table. Answering your question, I think, why is it that we don't make a bracha when we have any mitzvah ben Adam l'chavero? Any mitzvah ben Adam l'chavero, or not, I should say ben Adam l'chavero, any mitzvah that involves another human being, there is no bracha. You don't make a bracha on kibbutz of the aim. My mother's coming tomorrow for Shabbos, that's true. I'm going to pick her up. I don't make a bracha when I get to the house or when I leave my house here. You don't make it. You don't make a bracha on tzedakah. When you're about to give to tzedakah somebody, you don't say bracha to tzedakah. We don't make a bracha like that. Any mitzvah that has to do with another person, we do not make a bracha. Is this a given? Huh? Is it because it's a given? I, I can't hear you. Because it's a given that it needs to be done. No, no. The re- I mean, I'm not going to say no because maybe that's also a reason. The primary reason is, is that when you're dealing with other human beings, you don't know what their reactions are going to be. How many people have given somebody, comes to them for money, you give them a quarter and they throw it away? And they say, not interested. Or <laughs> they literally throw it away at you. How many times... You know, or, you know, you go and you, you're about to give tzedakah and the person, you, he was just there and he's not there anymore. You lost them. What about when your mother says to you, your father says to you, can you get me some water? And then you go to get a glass of water and he says, nah, forget about it. When you're dealing with human beings, you don't know their reaction. And that's why we don't make a bracha on any mitzvah which is... Uh, subject to another human being because you just don't know what's going to be. Even though 99 out of, uh, out of 100 times the woman under the chuppah is going to accept the ring from you. But I was at a wedding recently where the chassan almost left. It didn't happen, <laughs> but almost happened. Okay, it was about... It was, it was about a year or so ago, and almost—I mean, you know—it was touch and go for a moment. <laughs> I mean, like it was crazy. Okay. So. What caused that? I can't tell you that. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, what happened, honestly, was uh, a little bit of—I don't—it wasn't dishonesty, but there was a little bit of not being forthright between the. Uh, the families and uh, it wasn't forthright, and it came to 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 stew at the wedding. <laughs> it was, 
No, it came to, it came uh, boiled, over. boiled over, you know. Okay. Came back to lunch here. Yeah. Okay, so here comes, the, here's, the, here's, here's the point. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, we just went through all of this. Bali Chuva and Gerim have a big advantage over the people who are not Bali Chuva and are not Gerim. In the sense, the Bali Chuva will ask questions. People who went to Yeshiva Katana or, or Yisrael, whatever, people who went to Yeshiva all their life will very often, either they won't, there's certain questions they won't ask. They won't ask. Why? Either because we've been programmed, not, I don't mean programmed in a bad, in a bad, like, I don't mean brainwashed. It's just that we know that Avram was a big tzaddik. And we know Yitzchak and Yaakov were tzaddik, and we're better than that. We know the Avos were tzaddik, we know that the brothers were tzaddikin. So it's very hard for people to say, but he sold the brother, the brother sold the brother. Even I wouldn't sell my brother. So how does that work, right? We, we, because we've been told and we accept certain things, so sometimes the brain just doesn't click. It's just like, you know, it just, it rolls off. Like, how do I know? How do I know that fluoride is good for your teeth? I don't know. I don't know. They tell me it's good for your teeth, so you use fluoride. This guy says it's good, so I trust him. I don't know. Maybe I, should, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should look online, and we should start looking into studies and, you know, before we use fluoride for our children. Maybe. But we're programmed that we don't think because, not about a lot of things. Okay? Do we agree with that, that sometimes we don't question because... A, we were not programmed, but we were educated that we just don't think about it. But also sometimes embarrassed, you know, to raise your hand and say, that doesn't, like, what's shot in that pasuk? You know, like, bestiality really existed? I mean, you know, it still does, but I'm saying, <laughs> you know, where he was, he was in Iraq and Af in Afghanistan. No, not actually, you're only in Iraq. But, but I'm saying, we, we are, sometimes we're embarrassed, maybe. I told her. Wait, well, hold on, hold on a second. What did you tell me? We had the, the, the blimps on the base with the night vision, so we would see what everybody was doing in the fields, because we were looking for the people who were playing the bombs. They go out and they go, they go, the ghosts, ghosts, the ghosts and the donkeys. Are you joking? No. I heard they go up like near the cliff. I don't know if they near the cliff, but we had a vision. We had the Are video. You tell, you're telling me that you could see people with the donkeys? Yeah. Oh, my God. A rabbi once told me, too, that he was... Uh, yeah, but he was, he was there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the, the Americans, they put the, the, the music to it. Something very interesting. I, I want to tell you over what he was what he was speaking about. It's like these one of these psukim, and then I'm going to tell you the answer. I'll be I'll be Hasidus. 
Apinigva, a literal, literal translation is still a problem in my mind. Now that we're talking about it, I'll tell you what it is. And that's okay because I'm going to try to figure out this week in my learning, I'm going to try to figure out what the literal pshat is. But according to Hasidus, I'm going to explain to you what the pshat is. Both Avraham, these parshas in Bereshis talk about how a Jew survives in exile. Right? We're talking Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and the brothers are Misa, Avosim, Lebanim, that the activities that the Avos went through help us, guide us through our experiences until Mashiach comes, and gives us the power to be able to get through the, uh, the, the difficulties of exile until Mashiach comes. And something about Avram and Yitzchak, they do the same thing. Their wives are basically hostages. Basically, they become hostages. Avram says to Sarah, puts her into a box, right? Same thing with Yitzchak, right? Basically. And he says something very strange. For those people who are single, just don't do this. Don't 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 do this. And if you're married, you know already not to do this. <laughs> Tell the people that you're my sister instead of saying that you're my wife. You understand? Avram goes and Yitzchak goes and tells Sarah and Rivka, right? Tell these people that you're my sister and I'm your brother versus saying, I'm your husband and you're my wife. Do you see a problem with that, anybody here? Now, now that we're talking about it, do you see the difficulty with this? Anybody see the difficulty with Times it? Are different. What? Times are different. Okay, so that's how we, life. so you see that kind of answer might be true. That's how I we, mean, it's still a valid, no, it might still be true. It might be true, and maybe that's the literal translation. But this certain explanation, but there's certainly something deeper going on over here that Avraham, the man of honesty and integrity, is telling his wife, and it says that the, lo the love and the relationship between Avraham and Sarah, the Gemara says, was the greatest relationship that any husband and wife ever had. Go and tell her that you're my brother, uh, you're, my, uh, you're my sister, and I'm your brother. It just doesn't, it doesn't sound right. It, it seems, it doesn't sound right. Also, Dealing with Roshan, he knew. What? Dealing with Roshan. Uh, okay, so no, these are all the answers that we have, which but is also, dealing, dealing with Roshan, times were different, life and death. Life and death's a big one. You're allowed to eat trafe if it's life and death. You're only not allowed to bow down to idols, kill people, and have adultery or uh, incest for life and death, right? You're allowed to eat trafe. So I'm going to say, you're my sister. Not such a big deal, right? But that could be because, because he knew that they were, they were going to take her to do a because they were married. Okay, so you're asking halachic, but you guys are very halachic. You don't even realize it. You're thinking in very halachic terms. Okay, that's the question. Okay. If you don't like the question, the answer is really good. Sometimes you don't have to like a question, but the answer is really good. And we see it right now. 
you see something very interesting in the world. People, I, I, people, Jews, I'm talking about Jews now. We're not going to talk about the, the rest of the world that it has to make a choice between being evil or good. But Jews who never verbally or didn't seem to identify recently because of assimilation, did not seem to identify with Judaism, all of a sudden are standing up and identifying. They went to that big parade. I mean, not parade, that big march. You know, 300,000 Jews to get together in a country where there's all together, maybe, maybe stretching it, there's five million Jews. That's if you stretch it with intermarriage, you know? <coughs> so maybe. So you're basically talking about between, I don't know, that's roughly between about 8% of the Jewish population went down to Washington, something like that. And, and the Jewish world didn't go, really. They didn't go at all. Well, I shouldn't say at all, but they didn't go. Okay, okay, but that's nothing. That's numerically insignificant. And I'm, I'm not being negative. I'm just saying, you know, you know, 200 people. Yeah, you know, it's, it's okay. But, but you're right. Like with the people from the world, by and large, did not go. So maybe it was more like 10% of the Jewish population, or maybe 12, I don't know, whatever it is. A lot of Jews took, and, and Jews work. Most of us are not on welfare. Most of us are not on whatever, working for government type of jobs. Most Jewish people are working very hard, and they still took off the time to go. And not only that, but a lot of people who are in Hollywood or other places, I mean, even, I'll tell you, I, yesterday I, I listened, this is all about the answer to the thing. I'm not just going off in a thing. The, um, even, even Schumer, who I, I'm, I, I had... Until this, until yesterday, I had no respect for him, pretty much. Even he, he spoke, he was very, very open about his feelings about Judaism and about the Jewish world and about anti-Semitism. He was very, I don't know if you heard him speak yesterday. If you didn't, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile listening to him. He was very good. Messing, the actress who was, it was the first gay TV show, um, what, what's her first Will name? Deborah, Will and Grace. Yeah, Deborah Will and Grace. Deborah. She spoke really prop. There were others. There were so many. All people are coming out. Jewish people are coming out and getting together. My, bro, my, my son said that the 300,000 Jews that were down at the rally, they didn't realize it, but their neshamas were all saying to Hillel, Physically, they might not have been saying Tehillim because they don't know what Tehillim is necessarily, but, but their neshamas were unitedly saying Tehillim. Rav Tzadok had a klal. Rav Tzadok HaKohen was the big, a big Hasidic master. He had a student that maybe you guys heard of. His name was the Kutzka Rebbe. And the grand student, means the, the student of the Kotzke Rebbe, was a person by the name of the Ishbitz Gaon, Ishbitz. My, my wife's family is descended straight from them. My family is not, but my wife's family is. <laughs> and my son is named after the Ishbitzer. Mordechai Yosef was his name. So he says the same thing as Rav Tzadok. But Tzadok says that there are two different types of relationships to God. 
There's the husband and wife relationship. In general, it's the two types of relationships. Husband, wife. That's the relationship that Avram Avinu had with God. A husband and wife is a very interesting situation. Two people fall in love, whatever love means, right? In the Hasidic world, that's meeting for one hour, actually two hours. In the secular world, it's living together for five years. Who knows what it is? But you get married. This husband and wife relationship is based on how they act toward each other. Now, sometimes you're married, and the marriage is going a little bit south, but you have enough history, you have enough commonality, you have children that bind you, you have a lot of stuff that if you're married and things were good or they are good or you have hope that they will be good, they keep you together. And of course, if it is good, then it even keeps you together even better. But it is possible for that relationship to sever, to be broken. God forbid a, a marriage is on the rocks. You're still married. The relationship is still there. But according to Judaism, you are able to get divorced. It could break. That's the relationship that Avram had with God. He found God, and Avraham always looks, if you look in the Gemara, it's about how he looked at the Jewish people and God's relationship. It was always the husband-wife relationship. Because... He found God. He's the Balchuva. He's the Ger. He's the one that didn't have it, finds it. Then you have the Yitzchak relationship. The Yitzchak is the child, and the Ishbitzagon, who we're going to quote right now, extends it to the brother and sister, the sibling relationship. The child is born into the family. You get a bris when you're eight days old, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. You have no say in the matter, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you decided to go to have plastic surgery and have a piece of skin put on your penis, you are still considered circumcised. That's it. Might not be a good thing to do. God might not be happy with it. That's if you if you pull it over and you make yourself look like a guy, but you're still circumcised. But it says there's no there's no chile. I don't know about that. Okay, but the concept. Let's so let's get away from that. Let's not let's not focus on that. The idea being that a child cannot dis he can disown his parents. He his parents can disown him, but in reality. He's your kid. There ain't nothing you can do about it. The child is born. And siblings, maybe that's the reason that the Ishbitzer uses the example of the siblings more in this case. Siblings, you can't do anything about. You have, um, I know you have a brother. He's sleeping, it's okay. I, I know that you have a, uh, a sister. Why do you have a sister? Did you choose to have her sister? No choice. Can you do anything about it? No. You could fight from today till tomorrow, but there's nothing that you can do about it. That's the way it is. Yitzchak is telling us, and Avram is telling us, that the way to survive in Golos, the way to survive in exile, is not to look and to focus on the husband-wife situation when it comes to survival. 
but rather it's the relationship between the brother and the sister relationship, which can never be severed. And that is the relationship that all Jewish people have, and that's what we're feeling right now. We are feeling that relationship of brothers and sisters coming together, that it's like beyond rational, it's beyond rational, but it's there. It's, and it's very strong. I want to read a story to you about this. It's a beautiful story about the Rupayim um, Volazhin, and we'll stop after this. Rupayim Volazhin was the primary student of the Vilna Gaon. By the way, it's very interesting talking to everybody here because we're so in, we've been educated so well in halachic, in halachic Judaism that the Hasidic or the Midrashic or whatever metaphoric part of it's a little harder to, to, for it to enter because that's not where the brain is. Like sometimes you talk to people and they'll say, but, but what about the diktuk of the Pasuk? And you saying, that's true, but that's not. We're not, we're not working on the, dis, on the diktuk level. If that's, so this is a story. Okay. Reb Chaim Volazhin was asked for his opinion on what would be the outcome of Napoleon's attack on Russia. He replied that he wasn't a prophet, but he would relate a, rel, a relevant parable. This is the student of the Vilna Gaon. We know that the Vilna Gaon and, 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 and the Balatanya took different positions about who would be better for the Jews. The Balatanya wanted Russia to win because he felt that under czarist rule and anti-Semitism, there would be less intermarriage and assimilation. And he was worried about uh, the, uh, the, the open society that Napoleon would bring, which could turn into uh, the opposite of assimilation. So anyway, so Chaim Volazhin said like this, a nobleman driving a carriage drawn by four large horses was caught in a rainstorm. The carriage veered from the main road and its wheels sank in the mud. The man kept lashing his horses, but to no avail. The horses were unable to budge the carriage. A peasant with three small ponies soon passed by and advised the nobleman to unharness the large horses and let his ponies do the job. Right? So he's going to bring his little ponies and they're going to pull this big carriage out while these big monster Budweiser horses can't pull it out. The nobleman was skeptical. If his four strong horses couldn't move the carriage, what could these three scrawny ponies do? But the peasant insisted. As soon as the ponies were harnessed, the peasant gave one stroke of his whip and the ponies dragged the carriage out of the mud. The astonished nobleman looked on incredulously and asked the peasant how his ponies could accomplish what four large horses couldn't. The peasant asked him where he acquired his horses. The nobleman replied that they were brought from four of the world's finest stables. That's exactly the problem, the peasant said. Your horses are rivals and feel animosity toward each other. When one is lashed, the other three are happy and don't try to help. 
My ponies might be small, but they're brothers. When one is lashed, the other two try to save it with all their strength. Therefore, my three ponies accomplished more than your four ponies, your four grown horses. Rebchaim Volozhin said, this is the difference between Napoleon's army and the Russian army. Napoleon's army is comprised of many ethnic groups that have no interest in aiding one another. The Russian army, however, is united. The soldiers all desire to defend their homeland. For this reason, they have a better chance of being victorious. That's what he said. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a sense of unity crop up amongst the Jewish people, which we haven't seen. We haven't seen this. It's people feel like brothers. It's a very interesting and positive thing. That's a good story. I like that story. I was going to do more, but it's too late, obviously, next week. Nobody, is anybody having more potato coal? No, no, no. So does fluoride work? Yeah. It really does. No, no cap.